Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women. Their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science. Hello, I'm Nicholas DeMille. Welcome to this special Science Town series on connectivity. Given the events of the past year, it would seem that connectivity is more important than ever for work, education, groceries, mental health, and a whole lot more. As part of the 2021 Winter Enrichment Program at KAUST, we're exploring connectivity in all its forms with some of the world's leading experts. Today's guest is Carl Peterson. He's the director of the Brain Mind Institute at EPFL. He joined my colleague Ben Stevens to talk about how we know what it is that we know about connections in the brain. Enjoy. How would you define sensory perception? Right, yeah, so that's, that, that's I think it turns out to be a deep question uh, uh, and one that, of course, in some sense, we can't answer yet because uh, we don't yet know what the mechanistic details are. But of course, we all have, have our own impression of what uh, uh, the world is around us and, and the sensory percepts uh, that we have. So intuitively, from a sort of a, uh, each of our cells, uh, we have a subjective experience of the world around us. Uh, and in many cases, of course, we think that that matches up with other people's uh, experiences. So there is something out there that, uh, that, that we you know, can hold on to and believe to be uh, the world. And that presumably uh, are the sensory percepts. Now, it's also clear that the flow of information as it comes into us doesn't uniquely define our sensory percepts. So we can, I think sort of the most obvious examples there uh, relate to some of these interesting visual illusions uh, where, for example, there are bistable images. I think we've all seen these where you stare at it and one time it looks like a vase, another time it's two faces looking at each other. Uh, and that sort of thing tells us that even though uh, there's one set of photons falling on our retina, that can generate internally different percepts uh, uh, that arise inside our brain. So our sensory percepts are generated by the activity inside the brain. They're not out there in the real world. And of course, that also brings us into that sort of interesting mix of where we can imagine uh, uh, sensory uh, information coming in. So sort of dream world and our imagination plays an interesting and significant role in how we see the world around us. And I think equally, the other thing that I think we should uh, think about, so there's sort of this active process inside uh, uh, the brain that in the end determines our, our, our percept. And that comes about also through learning and experience. Uh, mm -hmm. So a, another part of uh, how we see the world is because we've seen it over and over again. We know what a chair looks like because we've seen millions of chairs before and all sorts of different shapes, angles, sizes. Uh, and it's sort of experience uh, that builds up. Uh, in, so there's a learning process uh, uh, as well as sort of this, uh, this active internal ingredients. Uh, and then maybe the final ingredient uh, that I think uh, we also shouldn't uh, completely forget about is the very active way in which we get the sensory information. So again, I think the visual system is the one that's sort of most obvious. We look 
uh, we select what we want to look at. We, you know, there's something interesting in our field of view. We fix our eyes on it and we choose, in fact, the sensory information uh, that we want to get. So our percepts are in part determined by our learning, in part by uh, sort of the ongoing computations in the brain. And also, uh, in some sense, we, we choose uh, uh, what we want to see, uh, uh, both uh, in an internal perspective, but also in a very real uh, uh, mechanical perspective, where we reach out, we touch something, uh, and we, so we actively palpate objects. Uh, uh, and so it's our movements that also select what sensory information comes in. And so it's, so it's, so it's an extremely complex and, and mm. deep question, in, in fact, uh, uh, how we should be thinking about uh, uh, sensory perception and certainly something that, that keeps coming back, of course, uh, in my work and in many different uh, ways and forms. Uh, uh, and maybe one other point that I think what I've spoken about right now, I think this is very relevant for the human condition where, of course, we all have sort of these internal subjective uh, uh, sensory percepts. Uh, now, when we think about how we want to, if we want to get into sort of mechanistic insight and understand how this might work at the level of individual cells inside the brain and how they, they, they function, then typically we start thinking about animal models, how we want to investigate sensory perception in animal models. And then we're left with sort of one further problem is what did the animal actually perceive? We can, of course, give mm. sensory information to the animal, but of course, they don't talk to us uh, uh, back. Uh, uh, and so somehow we need to probe uh, what did they feel. And so then you also need in our experiments uh, that we do investigate uh, mice uh, and how they can perceive the world around them. And so we need one further element and that is that we need to train the animals to tell us uh, uh, what they uh, perceive in the world around us. And typically you do this through, again, yet another set of learning uh, uh, where you teach the animal, okay, if you perceive, say, a certain sound or, or, or some other tactile uh, uh, input, then you should do something. So you need to train the animals to do stuff. And typically you do that either through rewards and punishments, very much in the way that all of us learn uh, 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 during our, our lives. Uh, and so in some sense, looking at perception in, say, a mouse is has this added complexity that we now need to put a motor action onto it. So once the animal's perceived, the animal's got to do something. So we also have to think not just about sensation and how that's processed, but we need to think about motor control. And we need to think about how you make that stimulus action association through reward-based learning. So automatically, we get involved in this very large, very complicated field of motor control, reward-based learning, as well as sensory perception, which as such is our core question. So it becomes very, very complex uh, and one really needs to complete full sensory motor loops if we really want to talk about perception because we need that subjective behavioral report from the animal. Of course, the same is true for a human. Of course, saying what we perceive is also a motor action, uh, of course, in itself, uh, speech. So um, with, with, a, with that mouse instance, you're talking about uh, the mouse perhaps going for some water in, in an experiment you've set up, that's, that's the signal that you're looking for. That's a very typical way. So a lot of modern sort of what people call systems neuroscience uh, is exactly that sort of thing where you train an animal and sort of the simplest reward, the simplest way of delivering reward to an animal is something like giving it food or water uh, uh, or some sugary uh, juice or some sort of something that uh, uh, it enjoys uh, and of course that has to be on a background of the animal being 
interested in water, so a little bit thirsty or a little bit hungry uh, and that sort of thing. And in our experiments, we use sugar water typically for, for our experiments. Uh, so there's a slight boost from the, the sugar. It's a little bit more uh, exciting than just a droplet of water, but the animals are thirsty also. So they, they do need motivation and, the, and motivation is yet another factor that we need to think of in our experiments as we probe sensory perception uh, and ask the animals to tell us what they uh, are feeling. And, and as part of that research, you're looking at um, what, what might be called neuronal circuits in the mouse brain. So can you talk a little bit more about them and how you're able to study them in, in those experiments? Absolutely, yeah. So I think increasingly the way that uh, neuroscientists are thinking about the brain uh, uh, is in terms of circuits where uh, the brain, of course, is composed of cells, just like all the other organs in our, our, our body. And these cells talk to each other, uh, and they do so in highly specific ways. Uh, and so there are many different types of neurons inside the brain. Uh, in the first instance, you can think about sort of excitatory and inhibitory neurons. The excitatory neurons try to uh, excite the other neurons uh, that they connect to, uh, and the inhibitory neurons try to, to, to turn the neurons that they're connected to off. Uh, and so there's this constant competition between excitation and inhibition and also some neuromodulation that comes and modulates things. And the way that sort of we think signals are being processed uh, is by specific neurons, types of neurons, sending signals to other parts of the brain, uh, uh, integrating, so for example, in the uh, types of behaviors that we study where we need to put sensory information in. First, this goes through a, a bunch of stations. It comes up to the neocortex, typically gets processed in the sensory part of the neocortex. And then when we ask the animal to tell us uh, uh, what it perceived, that information needs at minimum to spread to motor areas, which then control a motor output. So there's really a need for really large amounts of the brain to be involved even for very simple sensory percepts. And these are then formed by individual neurons talking to other neurons, but in highly specific patterns. Uh, and what gradually uh, scientists are beginning to realize uh, is that we can now begin to classify some of these neurons into what are called different cell types uh, uh, that have features that, in common with each other. Uh, and those cell types we study in, in the mouse, a lot of it is through gene expression patterns. We know that specific types of neurons express specific gene patterns, and that's probably the most robust way at the moment of, of classifying those neurons. Uh, and, and they then have specific patterns of connectivity. Some will project to other bits of the neocortex, others will project down to thalamus, striatum, brainstem, spinal cord, uh, and each one of those is a different type of neuron. Uh, and different types of neurons connect to each other in different ways, different patterns of connectivity. They also have different, um, uh, uh, many different integrative properties that, 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 that are different. And so we can begin to understand uh, uh, at this level of, of detail what individual neurons, how that might contribute. Uh, and altogether that then forms a, a big field of circuit neuroscience uh, that many people believe will be uh, the most important advance towards getting a more complete understanding of how the brain processes information.
typically a neuron. So these are the active cells uh, in, in, in the brain. There's, there's, I guess, two big classes of, of cells. There's sort of the glial cells that probably work slightly on longer time scales, have more integrative supportive uh, functions, very important contributions there too. The fast signals, those are coming out of the neurons. Uh, and they have, typically they have sort of a local what people call a dendritic arbor. So, so they have these long elongated processes. It looks very much like a, a tree uh, uh, that we, yeah. we, we, we have in the garden. Uh, and the dendrites, they receive signals. So other neurons are giving input there, either excitation or inhibition onto those dendrites that then gets summated basically at the cell body where we have the nucleus, the genes are, are getting expressed there. And then there's one axon that emanates typically from uh, the cell body. Uh, and that can go a long distance. So the dendrites they're short, they're usually less than a millimeter, often they're just a few hundred microns uh, from the cell body. But the axon, this can be, be very long, it connects one part of the brain to another, it can go all the way down the spinal cord, so it can be sort of a meter long, uh, 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 this axon. Uh, uh, and it's at the end of the axon, or along the length of the axon, it also divides and ramifies. Again, it forms another tree, uh, and it has many different places where it releases uh, neurotransmitters. So there's a chemical neurotransmitter that gets released when the neuron is active. It sends out pulses uh, of neurotransmitter that then is sensed by the dendrites of the postsynaptic uh, cell. So it's, it's a, sort of a, a continuous uh, process of activity, releasing a chemical that then gives an electrical signal on the dendrite of the next cell that then integrates these signals. Uh, maybe it gets active again, fires more action potentials, and that neuron in turn sends signals uh, and releases its uh, neurotransmitter on its target cell. So there's really a network of connectivity, uh, very intricate, very complicated, uh, where again, these different cell types have specific patterns of connectivity with other parts of the brain. Uh, and we're just at this stage beginning to understand a lot about the connectivity of the mouse brain at the level of anatomy. Uh, we now have new um, techniques uh, 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 where we can visualize the entire mouse brain intact. We can see all the way through it at very high resolution. We can trace the axons of individual nerve cells, where they're going, we can reconstruct them. And so we're beginning to build up libraries of what individual nerve cells look like in their entirety in uh, and not, a, not in a living brain, uh, uh, but in one of these uh, so-called tissue cleared brains, which sort of generate optical transparency. And you can look through uh, and through fluorescence, you can pick out individual axons uh, and how they ramify and spread across uh, entire mouse brains. It's extremely beautiful. Uh, and these are really new developments uh, over the last few years uh, where this has become possible through new technologies. Uh, so very exciting times for looking at connectivity, especially I'd say in the mouse uh, and model brains. Of course, in the human brain, we're also beginning to learn uh, more about connectivity, but that's a, that's a more difficult and a, a longer timescale problem. Of course, yes. Um, but what applications could there be in humans for understanding the, the precise mechanisms that underlie maybe the physiological brain function of a, of a mouse? Absolutely, yep. Yeah. So I mean, that's obviously the, I guess, one major reason, of course, why, 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 why we're doing our research. I think that there's two, I think, major motivations. Of course, one is just simply the challenge uh, of, of, of sort of, it's a frontier science where uh, I think we're all curious at some level of how 
the brain works, how we perceive uh, uh, the world around us. So, so I think it's exciting just to get some mechanistic insight uh, uh, if we can sort of understand uh, how that works, at least in a small animal uh, uh, that may uh, transfer uh, to understanding also what happens in the human brain. And in general, the sort of the, although one might be surprised about this, uh, uh, evolutionary, of course, there's some distance between a mouse and a human, uh, but it's also sort of, you know, <laughs> it, it's not as much as a fly and a human. So, so, so and there are very strong similarities uh, in the organization of the mouse brain and, and the human brain. So it's basically, it's a thousand times scaled down. Uh, and there are some sort of some additional uh, features of, of, of the human brain, but by and large, many of the same aspects, uh, same brain areas, same brain structures, same cell types, you can see all of the same cell types, uh, basically in mouse uh, and human, uh, uh, visual cortex in the humans at the back, that's the same for the mouse, uh, where we have, sort of have a feeling of touch, it's sort of somewhere around here, and the human is also somewhere in the same location in the mouse. So at, even at sort of both large and microscopic scales, the mouse brain and the human brain are extremely similar. The neurotransmitters, the chemicals, the genes, uh, the way that the neurons communicate are thought to be very, very similar. And the sort of the, 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 sort of the features that we think will be particularly important in terms of coming up uh, with uh, uh, things that are useful for, for example, for curing uh, human uh, 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 diseases then relate in part to mouse genetics. So, of course, in the human population, there's extremely interesting data where the populations of people with various different brain disorders uh, uh, get sequenced. We know something about what genes provide or, or make it more likely uh, that um, humans suffer from specific uh, uh, brain diseases. We can then take those genetic aberrations put them into a mouse model. Uh, and typically, at least in some cases, we also see that there are some related deficits in the mouse. And so we can begin to start and understand, okay, if we have this genetic uh, 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 um, mutation in a human, we can put that into a mouse, see what goes wrong there, can we then repair uh, in the mouse at least? And then hopefully one can then work one's way back uh, uh, either through sort of pharmacological or, or, or perhaps uh, uh, ge genetic uh, therapies uh, for, for in the long-term future. Uh, uh, there may be, I think, very interesting uh, parallels uh, uh, there. And so I think there's a number of interesting genetic uh, disorders that one can study. Uh, and Beyond that, I guess there's a few other things that, 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 are, that are interesting. I think, for example, for diseases where there may not be any uh, genetics there, one can nonetheless begin to study things like motivation, what underlies uh, uh, motivation, for example, that comes into our experiments because we need to motivate the animals to do something. Uh, uh, and so one can begin to study what the mechanisms of that are and that probably links in with things like depression. Uh, I think sensory perception per se, uh, if we understand some elements of what generates a, a, a sensory percept, that may also help us, for example, in the context of thinking about schizophrenia, where the positive uh, symptoms of schizophrenia are sort of associated with with hallucinations uh, and other things. And so I think there's many points of contact where first we need to get some level of understanding of what goes on. And, and that's where I think neuroscience is still a very young subject. So we're still back sort of grappling with very 
basic stuff that we, we really still have no concept of, of how, how these things emerge through neuronal uh, activity. And my guess is that some of those things are going to be able to transfer quite readily uh, comparing uh, mouse and human. I think from our own research, what we've looked at so far, one of the sort of things that we thought was cute and that dropped out very early on uh, 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 when we started looking at, at the mouse brain uh, uh, is that there are different brain states. So you can either be relaxed. Uh, so for example, I think the first electroencephalogram uh, uh, measurements, uh, EEG measurements that were made uh, from the human brain uh, by Hans Berger, this is uh, now uh, this, uh, close to 100 years ago, uh, he realized that when uh, a, uh, a, a subject was sitting completely relaxed, there would be these very slow oscillations uh, in the brain, whereas when the subject was awake looking around, uh, those slow oscillations would disappear. And we see exactly the same thing in the mouse brain. If the animal's sitting still, completely relaxed, we see slow waves, the animal starts moving around, uh, exploring, uh, those disappear. And so I think there are really very tight relations between what we observe so far in the mouse brain uh, and what is known about the human brain. So I think we're going to learn a lot, both at a fundamental level and also at a level where we can translate uh, and really hopefully come up with uh, cures or at least uh, uh, medications that can alleviate some of the symptoms of the vast number of brain disorders. And, and in, in that instance, what are those ways measuring? What are they representing? Is that activity in the neurons themselves? And how is that picked up? Yep, absolutely. So, so uh, we've seen it by, by, by a number of different uh, methodologies. Uh, so uh, we do a variety of different types of measurements uh, in, in my laboratory. At one level, we record from one or two cells uh, with very high definition. And then we can see, for example, that they, they have synchronous patterns of activity. So they'll be sort of uh, uh, changing. They'll be more or less excited, uh, more or less sort of synchronously. Uh, and that forms sort of the localized uh, perspective. Then we also do optical imaging, which we can do sort of basically on the whole dorsal side uh, of the mouse uh, uh, brain. Uh, that's about one centimeter in size. Uh, and then we see that there are interesting propagating waves of activity uh, that are spreading around uh, on the millisecond timescale. So there's these very fast waves that are presumably are connecting uh, activity in different parts of the brain. Uh, and of course, uh, one sees similar things also in the human brain. Uh, if you take EEG measurements, you also see very dynamic patterns uh, of activity there. Uh, so we think these methodologies connect up, of course, in the mouse uh, uh, with uh, optical measurements. Uh, we have this remarkable ability to be able to zoom in, not just to see the whole uh, uh, mouse brain and, and sort of the patterns of activity, but we can then zoom in and look at individual nerve cells uh, uh, flashing uh, uh, on and off that form sort of the then sort of the, the unitary components of these larger waves. Uh, uh, so that ability to zoom in is sort of the, the special thing uh, that you can do in the mouse, but not so easily in the human. Um, so that's sort of the level of detail, uh, the sort of the additional step uh, uh, that you can do in the mouse and then start putting cell types uh, uh, onto this and see what's different about neighboring cells that are sitting in the same part of the brain, uh, but they uh, maybe uh, have different functions because they talk to other brain areas. And so they carry different signals uh, uh, and, and presumably contribute differentially uh, to behavior and perception. Right. So for my final question, uh, I'd be interested to know uh, what first sparked your interest in neuroscience and what your hopes are for the field in the next five years, say? 
Yeah, so I, I guess somewhere in the back of my mind, I've always been interested, I think, as we all are in some way, just about how the brain works, how we experience uh, 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 the world. But actually, my, my own sort of studies, I, I, I started by, by studying physics uh, as an undergraduate, uh, which I thought was a very beautiful topic. Uh, I like that uh, mechanistic idea that you could put equations on things, and from those equations, you can derive you know how planets move uh, uh, how atoms work and I, I thought that was sort of a, a spectacular uh, uh, ability to put an equation on something and that actually would then materialize into uh, uh, the explaining uh, large amounts of the mechanics of the world uh, uh, that we live in I then gradually got more and more interested in biophysics uh, 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 as a sort of a as an interesting frontier where obviously uh, uh, through evolution uh, remarkable uh, uh, mechanics uh, of cells uh, have, have come about uh, and I started looking at sort of molecular details inside individual cells and how that's controlled uh, by of course many different factors uh, but one of them uh, one of the important control molecules uh, is calcium so uh, sort of something that we all know of and, uh, and, 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 and iron uh, that turns out to be highly regulated uh, and because of its interesting chemistry it turns lots of processes on and off uh, uh, and so in fact during my PhD I wasn't doing neuroscience science, uh, uh, I was looking uh, at, 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 at other aspects of, of, of calcium. But calcium does have also enormously important functions in the brain. It controls the release of these chemical signals, neurotransmitter. Uh, it also controls synaptic plasticity, which is sort of one of the key things that we think underlies learning. And so gradually, as I started working on calcium, I started, of course, reading more and more uh, uh, about what different uh, effects calcium had. Uh, and then I got more and more excited about neuroscience. Uh, and so when I finished my PhD, uh, where I'd been studying uh, calcium regulation in, in, in non-excitable cells, I thought that the most exciting direction was to go and look at what calcium does in the brain uh, and started to look at synaptic plasticity. And from there, I just got more and more fascinated diving deeper and deeper uh, into sort of how synaptic plasticity works. Then gradually we started uh, uh, thinking, okay, this was in relatively reduced systems where you have some cells in a dish, uh, which of course is great, very exciting. You can control and see lots of things, but it's not the brain yet. You don't have behavior. The, the goal of the brain obviously is to control behavior. Uh, and so it's really at that level where now uh, over the last 20 years or so, we've started working with animals that are doing stuff, they're behaving, and now we can really study the brain in action as it controls uh, uh, the world uh, or provides uh, percepts and motor control uh, and learning. And so that's sort of really a very exciting development and that the technology has moved along so incredibly rapidly over the last decade is really allowing spectacular advances. And, you know, I think in the next uh, years, we're really going to be able to understand a lot of detail uh, about how the brain works, at least in simple systems under simple well control. Of course, it's not going to be the human brain. It's not going to be the most complex uh, uh, things we'll understand. But some of the very basic mechanisms, we think in the next five to 10 years, we'll probably have a really quite detailed understanding and even sort of a quantitative understanding. It's nice that there's sort of this many things coming together 
computation technology, uh, the genetics uh, uh, and the physiology, training animals to do uh, uh, tasks. There's really many, many things uh, across, of course, the whole neuroscience community that are being brought together. And it's that convergence that is really exciting. Uh, and that's also, of course, beginning now to translate into, to, into therapies that will be uh, hopefully uh, deliver cures uh, and at least alleviate uh, some forms of, of, of human brain disorders. Great. Well, that's been absolutely fascinating. Um, thank you so much for your time and uh, very best of luck with your talk at WEP 2021. Thank you very much, Benjamin. Pleasure talking to you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this special series on connectivity. Science Town is produced by Mark Bowes, Alex Aries, and Julie West. I'm Nicholas DeMille. Until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.